Hello and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I am your host, Phil Shiroki. And today we are going to continue and conclude our look at Matthew chapter 5. We are going to finish up in verses 43 to 48 where Jesus commands us to love our enemies as we continue our in-depth look at the Sermon on the Mount again. Hands down, easily the greatest sermon, the greatest teaching ever taught um, to men by God himself as he was here as 100% man, also 100% God. Um, In the first part, we looked at, um, we were kind of uh, back and forth a little bit. We were in the Old Testament and the New Testament and we are going to do the same in this uh, concluding look here. Um, we again kind of the, the first part addressed verses 43 through kind of 46, if you will. This last section is going to address kind of verses 47 and 48. Again, of Matthew chapter 5, we are going to be in Psalms, the book of Genesis. Then we're going to finish up in the book of Ephesians in the New Testament. And um All right, without any further ado, let's continue and conclude our look at loving our enemies. Okay, and we are going to quickly read our verse again here that we're addressing, and then we are going to, again, just look at some more verses that touch on exactly what Christ touches and talks about. So, um, Again, the uh, Spirit for Life New King James Version Bible that I use to study the Word subtitles this section as Love Your Enemies, uh, picking up a verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have you? Do you not do even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore. You shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So we are going to flip back now to the book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 65, verses 9 to 13. Again, I really love that verse where Jesus talks about the sun rising on the evil and on the good and the rain pouring down on the just and the unjust. And that's kind of what we're going to look at here. So again, we're going to look at Psalm 65, verses 9 to 13. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its furrows. You make it soft with showers. You bless its growth. You crown the year with your goodness, and your paths drip with abundance. 
They drop on the pastures of, of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy. They also sing. And looking at the notes here for, again, Psalm chapter 65, verses 9 through 13, it says, Earth, God's existence, as well as his sustaining role, are clearly evident in the ecological balance of nature. And then addressing uh, the note addressing verse 11 there, where it says, You crown the year with your goodness, and your paths drip with abundance. The note says, undoubtedly, this psalm was sung at the harvest festival at the end of the agricultural year. So I just love this psalm. I love the psalms themselves because, again, they're just so beautifully written. They just convey so many thoughts in so many eloquent ways that um, they're very poetic. They're uh, just really a testimony to the amazing, um, you know, some of the amazing parts of, of God and his word. But um, I especially love that where, you know, it talks about the way God basically, he sustains the entire globe, the entire universe. He gets very little to no credit for that. But it's an important point to think about and a really awesome thing to think about when you realize that God truly does and is in control of every facet of not only, you know, the earth and the ecological system, the moon, the stars, the planets, the solar systems, the galaxies, I mean, are all a beautiful symphony and a beautiful testimony to the living God who created all that we know of and do not know of. Um, you know, I saw a pretty amazing picture. I, I love some of the space telescopes we have now can just get some incredibly amazing detail of every planet um, and especially the sun. Um, you know, I always have this thought of the sun. <laughs> I always you know, again, there's absolutely no biblical evidence to this. It's my just own personal thought, but I always picture heaven being in the center of the sun, um, in a spiritual sense, maybe. But um, you know, just given the brightness of the sun, the brilliance. But there was a really amazing photo I saw recently, a very detailed photo of the surface of the sun. And just to see the surface of the sun is absolutely incredible. I mean, I picture, uh, again, I mean, look, from our perspective here on Earth, looking at the sun, it's, it's brilliant, it's bright, it's a big yellow ball, essentially. But when you really get in the finer detail of the sun, it's actually... You know, it's it's the surface of the sun is just on fire because of the um, the thermonuclear the thermonuclear activity that goes on in this sun. You know, basically the sun is just a billion, billion, billion nuclear bombs going off all at the same time in just a, a, a magnificent capacity that we can't even comprehend. But um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful picture, and um, it just gives you a perspective that again, um, you know, I just picture you know, floating around in, in the heavens someday, just being seeing things that our minds can't even comprehend. That was 
that was mind bending and, and a real open window, in my opinion, to just seeing things from a different perspective. It was really incredible. Um, I don't know the exact website or, or anything. I'm sure you could Google just, you know, surface image of the sun. I'm sure it would come up, but it's just very, uh, it's incredible to see that, um, that view. And again, just having a different perspective, kind of getting closer and seeing that was just, it's just beautiful. Um, and it's just, it just shows the, you know, we can see some pretty far distances with these space telescopes we have now. Again, I'm an animal, I'd call myself an amateur astronomer, if you will. I'm really just, you know, at this point, I don't have much time to even really look at it, but, um, I do love the, um, the the universe the solar system the um the way again i just picture it like a perfect symphony that's controlled by god the mind blowing part too is thinking about the physical things we see in this realm as well as god being in control of everything in the spiritual realm every aspect of every one of our lives keeping track and keeping a total um record of everything that goes on it's just mind bending and incredible um Again, the living God, the creator of all that is that exists. Um, truly, truly, uh, I look forward to, uh, you know, seeing him someday I, in whatever shape, form or capacity I I do get to take him in in. Um, that's going to be really amazing stuff. But uh, all right. So let's flip back now. We're going to we were just looking at Genesis uh, or excuse me. Um, Psalm 65, verses 9 to 13. We're going to flip back to Genesis chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7, where it says, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, or excuse me, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. So... I just love that, um, you know, that passage in particular, the reason why I want to look at it is because when we, well, let's just look at the notes and then I'll, I'll get into that. 13 more years passed before God affirmed the covenant with Abram. Almighty God is translated from the Hebrew El Shaddai, whose root emphasizes God's might over against the frailty of man. In Genesis, it is used particularly in situations where people are hard-pressed and need assurance. Name changes correspond to either character change 
or a major call from God. Abram's name is changed from exalted father to father of a multitude. In spite of his new name, Abraham still did not have the promised son through Sarai, who was almost 90 years of age. So we're going to look at that word now, covenant, um, where in verse 7, God says to Abram, Abraham and now, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. That word covenant means Beirit, a covenant, compact, pledge, treaty, agreement. This is one of the most theologically important words in the Bible, appearing more than 250 times in the Old Testament. A berit may be made between individuals, between a king and his people, or by God with his people. Here, God's irrevocable pledge is that he will be God to Abraham and his descendants forever. The greatest provision of the Abrahamic covenant. This is the foundation stone of Israel's eternal relationship to God, a truth affirmed by David. See 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 24 by the Lord himself. See Jeremiah chapter 33 verses 24 to 26 and by Paul. See Romans chapter 9 verse 4 chapter 11 verses 2 and 29. All other Bible promises are based on this one. So, um, one thing in chapter 6, if you notice, it says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. Keep that in mind as we look at this kingdom dynamics section again in uh, my Spirit-Filled Life New King James Version Bible for Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, where it says, the words we speak, faith's confession. One of the explicit teachings of the Bible is the importance of the words we speak. In this text, God changes Abram's name to Abraham and promises Abraham that he will become the father of many nations. Abram means high father or patriarch. Abraham means father of a multitude. Thus, God was arranging that every time Abraham heard or spoke his own name, he would be reminded of God's promise. Abraham Clark's commentary states it well. God associates the patriarch more nearly to himself by thus imparting to him a portion of his own name. Noting God added this to Abraham for the sake of dignity. The principle, let God's words which designated his will and promise for your life become as fixed in your mind and as governing of your speech as God's changing Abraham, Abraham, Abraham's name when was in shaping his concept of himself. Do not name yourself anything less than God does. So that section there, again, um, it's just addressing the change in heart and the change in Abraham's name. But it's important to remember that 
from this very covenant, this very promise God made, where he says, I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. David came from this promise and Jesus was from the line of David. So we can trace Jesus's roots all the way back to Abraham and which it does that in the genealogies in Matthew and in um, Luke. But I also, it's important to see here how the, the attitude, the words, what, what we say is very important to God. He makes promises to us. And when God speaks and commands us, for example, to exemplify himself by loving our enemies the way he did, it's not just words. These aren't just things he said just to, you know, sound lawfare or to sound like a great teacher. These are commandments God gave us that we must keep and we must live out because everything is a building block when it comes to maturing in godly maturity. And without, you know, the tests, the trials and tribulations we go through to um, you know, endure those things, to go through them, to go through the refiner's fire. Um, we, we go through those for a very specific purpose because eventually you should get to a point of maturity where you're overcoming those things. And once you overcome things step by step, as God leads us through this walk of life, then we also become, again, that image of Christ. And one of the ultimate examples of Christ is loving your enemies. And one of the ultimate examples and the shining example of um, the Father himself is loving those who even hate you because God, again, he loves every, he loves the world. So he gave Jesus for the world, knowing that the world hates him. He still, it's only in his character to love. It's a very beautiful thing when you come to the realization of the vast, I'll say universe. I was going to say ocean of love that God offers, but in comparison to, you know, relative to the universe, our oceans and our planet is very small and it's just a minor, minor spec. So I will say the great expanse of God's love cannot be even contained in the vast universe that we see around us and we exist and travel through. So um, we're going to finish up our look here again at um, this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount of, again, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, where we're concluding chapter 5, where Jesus commands us to love our enemies. We're going to finish up in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Then we'll look at the notes for this section. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us in offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So quickly just stopping there, those two verses where Paul just speaks about the, you know, Christ's 
death and his crucifixion. I mean, his words, the way he says, Christ gave himself for us as an offering and as a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. So we must realize and be humbled by the fact of what God did for us through his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect example that was obedient unto death. Um, again, <laughs> I'm trying to nail these points home because once we start to realize these things and truly let them saturate our soul and our being and our heart, then we can truly appreciate the example that we have and understand that we are we have no right to walk around boastfully or pridefully in any way or capacity. It, it's absolute foolishness. So, you know, in part one, I spoke about these people that that claim Christ in some kind of political theater or um, realm. Just leave him out of your garbage, your worldly politics. Go fight your right wing and left wing wing battles all you want, but just leave God out of it because he wants nothing to do with it. He didn't want anything to do with it when he was here. He never addressed politics in a very in-depth way for a reason, and he kept the focus on God for a reason. So let's look at the notes here for, again, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where especially that part where it says God, he Christ offered himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. What that means Sweet-smelling aroma parallels the figure of the Old Testament sacrifices offered in worship. Um, and then we're going to get into the truth and action section again at the end of Ephesians here. Uh, again, these are just sections that um, kind of address the, um, just kind of break down and dissect what is being discussed in these particular verses and the particular books. So we're going to look at the truth and action section here at the end of Ephesians section one. It says guidelines for growing in godliness. Simply put, godliness is living the way God wants us to. Few books speak as clearly and successively to this subject as does Ephesians. Here, godliness is exhorted in terms of behavior motivating dynamic and example godly behavior is modeled after god himself especially as he has revealed himself in his fullness in jesus christ and then the action section here so that's the truth and this is what we're called to do understand that your conduct is the most effective sermon you will ever preach Live a life that will give consistent, undeniable evidence of the truth of the gospel. Model your life after Jesus, imitating him rather than others. Understand that he is the perfect example of the love God requires. Be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Overflow with a continual song of praise and thanksgiving to maintain a spirit-filled flow in your life. 
Give yourself to constant faithful prayer. Let God change your prayer, prayer life to a life of prayer. I love that last part there where it says, again, <laughs> I kind of stumbled over it, so excuse me. Let God change your prayer life to a life of prayer. We are called to constantly be in prayer and to constantly pray. And that minor shift in perspective, again, to change your prayer life into a life of prayer is life changing because when you when we truly learn how to not only run to God in times of need, in times of trouble, and bring our prayer and supplication to him then, but then ignore him during the other whatever percentage of our life. But when we actually let our lives become lives of prayer, where we are constantly seeking him and his will, I mean, could you imagine the impact the church would have if we all just made that subtle change? Um, I know I can I can use a more of a change in that area, as I'm sure many of us can. And um, again, focus on, you know, loving our enemies as we love ourselves, because again, or excuse me, loving our enemies, regardless of what they do and loving others as we love ourselves and not repaying evil with evil, but re <laughs> responding to evil with good and not repaying hatred with hate, but responding to hate with an attitude of love. That again is the true difference between us as Christians who are called to exemplify Christ and the rest of the world. So again, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, where Jesus tells us too, again, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven and daughters. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Take note of God being un indiscriminate to who he blesses with just the very amazing world that we live in. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And again, that last verse there where it talks about perfection, the note here says, The emphasis in the command to be perfect is not on a flawless moral nature, but an all-inclusive love that seeks the good of all. Instead of following the example of sinners who love only those who love them, we are to be like the Father in also loving those who do not love us. So, again, this is an absolutely life-changing 
teaching of Jesus in so many capacities, so many ways. And it's truly, it's a, there's a good reason why it's one of his most popular teachings. But um, again, it's essential that we understand this truth and that we live it out. So that's going to conclude our look at Matthew chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus discusses loving your enemies. So God bless and have a great day.